gendered issue for all women. Hi, Hannah here. Welcome to another special edition of the Standard Issue podcast. This week, because International Men's Day is looming, that's specifically November the 19th, thanks Richard Herring, for one week we've asked some men to do the talking about the issues that affect them. Clutches, pearls. You may have heard some of these interviews already, and if you haven't, then when you finish listening to this, you know what to do. Mix chatted to best-selling author and all-round good egg Matt Haig about what they've charmingly, but pretty accurately, renamed mental diarrhoea. And Jen went to see Dr Jacob Whittingham Vigors, head of programmes at London's Fight for Peace Academy, to find out about how they're helping socially isolated young people at risk of violence. Plus, coming up in the next few days are interviews with artist and campaigner Jordan Stevens about toxic masculinity, and Luke Hart, domestic violence campaigner and co-author with his brother Ryan of Operation Lighthouse, which tells the story of how his mum Claire and sister Charlotte were murdered by his father. So keep your ears peeled for them. But let's get on with this episode, eh? Because next week is also Alcohol Awareness Week, I went down to Westminster to talk to Shadow Health Secretary Jonathan Ashworth about being the child of an alcoholic, how society views drinking and why it's good to talk no matter how hard it is. Just a wee warning, this does contain what I can only describe as an unusual amount of feelings for me. I hope it's useful to you. Back in the early part of 2017, you made a speech in Parliament about your dad, which had quite a profound impact on me. It was a couple of weeks after my dad had died. My dad like your dad was an alcoholic and I actually felt I have to say I felt different about it after I'd heard you speaking because not because of what you said but because you were saying it and you were standing up and saying it publicly and I thought I should talk about this more and I really started to question why I hadn't talked about it more now I bet I'm not the first person to say that to you am I <laughs> no no um uh, where to start with a conversation like this? Um, I am, as you as you rightly said, Labour's Shadow Health Secretary, and I got that this job at the end of it was October 2016. And when I got the job, I, I knew I would have to do the stuff that politicians who speak on health do go on go on the TV and complain about the state of your A and E departments, complain about millions being on the waiting lists and the crisis in hospitals and complain about the Tories and the mess they're making of it all. But I also knew that this was an opportunity for me to speak out about something which has affected my life and the way I grew up and and which I hadn't really mentioned before, really, um, although I'd sort of alluded to it on one or two occasions, uh, which was my dad's alcoholism. That, that In our culture, we have such a... A funny relationship with alcohol. Everybody, yeah. everybody goes out. Let's go out, have a drink, have a good time. Yeah. You, you almost feel bullied into having a drink or intimidated into it because if you don't, you're a sort of you're not a fun person. It you're boring. You're killjoy. Yeah. But of course, I grew up with a dad, a loving dad, who was always drunk, always, ne- never violent or anything like that, but just drunk all the time when I was with him. He would justify it to himself by saying, well, on the days that he worked, he worked in a casino, it's croupier in a casino. He would justify it by saying, well, when he's on his way to work, he doesn't have a drink. So he, he could sort of, um, 
you know, he would say he could control it. But on the days he wasn't in work, when I stayed with him, because my mum and dad were divorced, my mum was an ex-barmaid and uh, my dad was a croupier, but they were divorced. So the days that I stayed with him, he was he was drunk. In a roundabout way, we had a debate in the House of Commons about alcohol and its effects on society, and I decided to speak in it. And I wrote down a very long, boring speech about alcohol policy and, and alcohol duty and all the rest of it. And in the end, I just sort of threw it away and I just got up and told my my story. Things came out of my mouth which I'd never said before and wasn't expecting to say, but it just seemed appropriate to say it. And I, t- and I told a story which I've never really hadn't told before, which although lots of my friends and my, my family knew it. It was a story of um, my dad who... I remember one Christmas he turned around to me and said, I'm going. I went, well, you what? He said, I'm going to Thailand. I said, what are you on about? He said, I'm going to Thailand. He, 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 he finished working in the casino. He was 59. He, and I knew when he went to live in Thailand, I knew that. I, I remember thinking to myself, I'll never see him again. And then he went to Thailand, drank a bottle of whiskey a day, apparently, in Thailand. Wow. Couldn't, he couldn't come to my wedding. I got married in the summer of 2010. Two days before the wedding, he rang me up and said, I can't make it, I've not been able to get a plane ticket. I was so angry with him. And that was the the last time I spoke to him, because in the September, he was dead. And I found out later on that the reason he didn't come to my wedding wasn't because he couldn't get a plane ticket. It's because he felt that he, you know, he was a working-class man from Salford, who was an alcoholic, a drink problem. I'd become a politician. I'd gone to university. I'd gone into a world which he never experienced. He felt that he would embarrass me or that he would shame me because he'd be drunk and there'd be all these politicians and people like that at the wedding and posh people in his eye. And he just never came. And that's that's what alcohol does. Yeah, it it spoke to me a lot because you're talking, I mean, what we're talking about here is is shame, isn't it? And I genuinely believe that had my dad been able to talk openly about his problem, he would still be here now. I think he suffered from a thing, possibly like your dad, with he's a working class man, the same generation you and I are on the same age. And it's just not the done thing. It was a problem that he wanted to deal with in-house, I suppose, is the only way you could describe it. But he wasn't even particularly open with us about how much he was drinking. And therefore, the conversation never happened. So there was never any sort of analysis any deeper of what it, what it was, what the problem was, what was what was afflicting him. Now, I mean, I have no idea whether or not it's correct that that's something that happens more with men than it does with women. But I think in other issues in society, like, say, for example, just mental health men don't generally talk openly about the way that they feel about things so much as, as women do. So as children of alcoholics, you kind of you buy into this thing that he wouldn't want me. And God, he'd come and turn this machine off now if he knew that I was talking about this publicly because that's, that's not the sort of man he was. So we, you sort of buy into it as children, don't you? So. Yeah, I know exactly where you, what you're saying and what you're coming from because my dad wouldn't want to talk about this. 
And if anything, I mean, my dad was... He could be the life and soul of the party when oh. he'd had a drink. And, and and all his mates would encourage him to have a drink because he could be the life and soul. But for me growing up, it was just sort of... It was just... Well, as a teenager, it's sort of boring and annoying and embarrassing because, you know, teenagers were all sort of... You know, we all want to think we're really sort of cool yeah. and don't want to hang around with our parents. But as a, as a you know, I remember as a sort of 12-year-old, you know... Um, meeting him after school and him being so drunk that he falls over outside the sort of school gate. I remember, um, uh, you know, as a thirteen-year-old, going to open the fridge and there being nothing in there but, but booze, bottles of wine, and cans of lager, and I'd have to go down to the corner shop myself to get some stuff in for you know from food in. And when I got older as a teenager, I began to sort of think about these things a bit deep, more deeply, and I tried to confront him. He just wouldn't accept it. No, he wouldn't accept it, and he wouldn't want to talk about it. And, and and even talking about it today, you're right. It's a big issue to talk about this because there's a sense of me that is I do feel ashamed, not because of any sense of embarrassment, but as part of me thinks, am I betraying his memory? Yeah, exactly. I, I feel that unbelievably strongly because it's the complicated issue of when you choose to talk about your life your life has other people in it, and therefore you kind of talking about their life too. Yeah, you're right, because you, you, you're not just telling your story, you're telling someone else's yeah. story, and that person may not want, may not have wanted that story to be told. But then on the other hand, it's what has made me what I am. Yeah, absolutely. That has made me, given me the personality I've got. And I've got an extraordinarily privileged platform. You know, I'm Labour's... Shadow Health Secretary, I, I have no idea what happened in politics, but I could be the Health Secretary and I want to do something about mm. drug abuse and alcohol abuse. I'm not a Puritan, but if you look at the numbers, and then this is where I'm sort of become the, a bit more of the politician, I suppose, all the drug and alcohol services in society have been cut back by millions. Millions have been cut from it. There's, we've got the highest numbers of drug misuse deaths on records. We've got some of the highest numbers of admissions to hospital for alcohol mm. abuse. We've got 600,000 people with an alcohol problem not getting any treatment. And, of course, there's... Well, there's different estimates, but some estimate estimate there could be as many as 2 million children growing up with an alcoholic parent. 2 million? That's the, that, wow. is the, that is at the um, the higher end of the scale because there's, there's different estimates. And all the statistics show, if you grow up with an alcoholic parent, you are more likely yourself to get involved with drink or drugs... Uh, you're more likely to get involved with self-harming, particularly if you're a, if you're a, a, a girl. Uh, more likely to truant from school. None of that happened to me. I mean, I became a politician, so you yeah. know, some people could argue it affected me in a different way negatively, I suppose. But uh, um, it has a huge impact on families and children. Yeah, and I think we've got to do something about it. I was reading some things on on uh, the Nicola website, which said that studies, or or a study that graded drugs by by danger and not just the danger to the individual but the danger to the people around them that alcohol like beat out crack cocaine and heroin by some considerable margin oh yeah i mean it's a horrendous it's a horrendous drug i mean i do drink i'm not yeah me too <laughs> never by myself though i have to say that's a, a kind of a rule that i got a line i've set myself in the sand but... yeah well that that you know i don't do that either i mean that's what my dad used to do yeah he'd sit in the uh, if he wasn't as well as being very sociable, but if he wasn't sociable, he'd also drink on his own in the house, in front of the television all night long, or he'd put his, you know, his records on, you know, he used to like the nineteen seventies 
prog rock band Yes. Oh, God. <laughs> I know, not, not, not my sort of music, but you listen to Yes. I oh, also listened to The Carpenters as well. You knew it was going to be a particularly melancholic night if, it, <laughs> if he was putting The Carpenters on while he was, uh, yeah. while he was drunk. And you know, I drink sociably and uh, I, I try, I mean, I do drink. I mean, I don't drink as much as I did when I was like in my 20s or whatever. I did drink reasonably heavily because, because I grew up in a culture, not just within my family. There's this idea that that alcohol was the answer to everything. You'd had a bad day, you had a drink, you had a good day, you had a drink, and you celebrated. And I kind of really wholeheartedly bought into that, I would say. I was probably in my late 20s before I actually sort of considered what I was drinking. And then something happened to me to stop me drinking as much, and that wasn't anything to do with choice. That was to do with the fact that I just seemed to lose a tolerance for drinking. And now I've got to a point where I'm in my 40s that hangovers are so bad that actually it has to be worth it. It has to be. If I think, if I'm going to get drunk, I have to have a good, clear couple of days afterwards where I'm not doing anything. <laughs> and it has to be really worth the price that I pay afterwards. So I, I get to be somewhat, I suppose, sanctimonious without actually, you know, the choice wasn't strictly mine. It was my stomach's choice. But yeah. it, it said I'd, I'd had enough. Children of alcoholics, it doesn't just, we don't, and certainly Nicola doesn't just mean children. Does it? When, when I um, initially emailed Nicola about talking to you, they sent an email back to me that said, you know, you are very welcome to use our services if this is something that's affected you personally. My brother and sister don't even really have the same experience or come mm. away with the same impression as I have. I think it's a very unique to mm. you as a person mm. in the house that you grew up in. But to me, I found it... When I was a child, things, they were what they were, and mm. you don't really have a frame of reference so much. Mm. And even the frame of reference that I did have, like I say, like my parents were young when they had me, mm. and everyone was drinking. You know, your mum worked in a pub, my mum worked in a pub. There was yeah. just booze everywhere yeah. around me. So my dad's drinking didn't necessarily strike me as something that was particularly concerning. I actually struggled more as an adult with the idea that he was an alcoholic because you, you see the bigger picture a bit more as an adult, don't you? When I was a kid, I used to think oh God, the worst thing that would happen would be that he would crash his car drink driving and he would mm. die. And when I was an adult, I thought the worst thing that would happen is that he'd crash his car drink driving and he'd kill someone. Mm. You, you worry about different things. Mm. So there are, that's two different services that, 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 or two different groups that need to be sort of serviced by provision for children of alcoholics, isn't it? I mean, yeah, I mean, I mean yeah, absolutely. And it's when I become a, um, a more mature teenager... Uh, that I really began to understand the problems that my dad had and try to confront me with it. But it's only when I've been an adult that I've really processed it properly and looked back and seen how serious the situation was. I mean, when you're a kid, you, I mean, you, you get on with things because yeah. you don't know in any other way. But you, but it was all. I mean, you know, it was, this is the you know the eighties and the. Uh, uh, early 90s I mean it was all seen as a bit of a joke I mean my dad didn't drive he, he would tell a story about how he went to his first driving lesson drunk and the, and the driving uh, uh, instructor said to him look if you're going to get drunk all the time like this there's no point carrying on and he just went alright then I'm, gonna, I'm not going to carry on with driving lessons so he never he never drove yeah. get, so because he and, and he would tell that story as if it was a great sort of thing to sort of <laughs> congratulate himself over and ever, and uh, I mean it's a funny story but it's also got a sort of tinge of tragedy about yeah. it as well at the same time and, and 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 I think there were a lot of adults who and particularly men who grew up with an alcoholic parent 
and haven't spoken about this, who've hidden a secret that they've lived in a family where on the outside all seemed fine, but when the curtains were closed and bottles of wine or cans of beer were opened, terrible things went on in the house. Mm. I mean, I was lucky. My dad was never violent. Yeah, I, I have to say, uh, for, the, for, for the tape, my dad wasn't like that either. But we know there were parents with drink problems who sexually abused, um, violent, and all of that. I never had any of that. And we know there are lots of people out there living with those secrets and burdens. When I spoke out, a man came to me in the street, stopped me in the street and said, you're that John Asher fan. And he said, I just wanted to thank you. The first time in my life I've been able to talk to my 14-year-old son about my childhood growing up with an alcoholic parent. I've never been able to, and he said, I've never been able to talk to anyone about it before. But my son saw your speech on Facebook and just happened to say, have you seen this politician on Facebook? Um, Because it was going round, you know, people sharing it. And he said to me, that speech allowed me to open up to my 14-year-old son in a way that I'd never thought I'd be able to. So even even if just for that, I think it was worth speaking out because you're right, men, men particularly do bottle these things up yeah. they don't want to talk about stuff they they internalize these burdens and and you've sort of hinted, alluded to it about the suicide rates amongst young men are uh, awful awful yeah. um so it really is a sort of i think a crisis we're facing from in terms of men's mental health although there are mental health issues affecting women of course but there's a particular issue around men and suicide at the moment and i think it is a lot to do because we we we, we take these burdens and we don't talk we don't get help we don't get professional help and we think we can sort of deal with it all inside and that my dad clearly had demons and problems mm. and he turned to drink we call it self-medicating these yeah. days in the lingo but you know drink was his crutch and he died when he was 60 not even 61 as a result of it i just wish knowing now what i know about health issues now i'm in my 40s i just wish i'd talked to him properly properly about it all yeah. um, but I never did yeah unfortunately isn't it the life of children of alcoholics you end up with quite a lot of regrets of your own and sometimes I think you need the information that you learn when they actually die yeah that's that's when you kind of you sort of have a moment of clarity that's like yeah. Somebody said to me said to me about, um, you know, what's it like being a child and an alcoholic? And I'm like, you know, I don't know, because it's different for everybody. But comparing it to when my mum had breast cancer, I she's fine now. But you kind of think, OK, she says, so she's got this thing. She's seriously ill. And you have to try and do this balancing trick of wanting to believe that it's going to be all right and, and hoping, because yeah. that's good for you and it's good mm. for her and it's good for everyone around you. And somewhere else, preparing yourself for the fact that it might not be all right. And with my dad, it was like that, but for like 30 years. Yeah. This sort of this, never give up, never stop nagging him, never walk away and say, well, sometimes I walk away and I hope that if I didn't speak to him for a mm. year, he might suddenly think, oh God, yeah. <laughs> if I kept up drinking, she'd come back to me. But he knew eventually I'd come back anyway. So feeling that sort of trying really hard to keep pushing him and try and be optimistic but at the same point mm. thinking you know where this is going to end and you've got ready yourself for yeah. it. because if you don't it's going to come to you like a real sort of mm. punch in the face yeah 
I think part of the problem is even people I know who I consider having quite progressive views can sometimes hold some quite regressive views, I think, mm. about alcoholism and what it actually is. Mm. That it's a weakness or it's a selfishness or it's, you know, like it's a choice almost. How do you think we, sort of society, but also the government could be working towards sort of changing that in that attitude in people? I think you're right. There's a sort of sense in which people have selfishly decided to uh, you know, get involved in drink and, and similar attitudes towards drugs, not appreciating that it is an addiction, it is a, it's a mental health problem. It's why I'm so angry that all the addiction services have been so drastically cut back in our communities and we've got all these you know, drug and alcohol problems on the increase in society. We, we, we've got to get the messaging out there well, the government's got to speak more about the uh, the dangers of alcohol. So, look, look, we just had the budget this week. You know, wh- one of the biggest cheers that the Chancellor gets in the House of Commons is when he says, I'm knocking a penny off the pint of beer. And I can understand why they do it, because they, they think there's going to be votes in it. There probably is votes in it, but... It's part of me thinking, really, is this yeah. is this where we are? That you know, let's, a penny off beer is like that's all like cheer. And there's also now a lot of a lot of the advice that we give to pregnant mums is like really weak compared to what it should be about drinking in pregnancy. If you drinking in pregnancy damages your unborn baby, it's called fetal alcohol syndrome. In Canada, they have very clear. Uh, signs in places that uh, uh, sell alcohol about the dangers of drinking in pregnancy. We don't have anything like that no. in this country. There's no. Cl- if you look at a bottle of wine, it says, "Well, you know, you shouldn't really drink in pregnancy," but it doesn't tell you you should. Now, now, you know, I don't want to like make mums who've had a glass of wine while pregnant feel, you know, um, you know, guilty and shame because, you know, and I'm sure there'd be lots of your listeners who get would get angry if they thought we were trying to shame them. But I just think we need clearer public health information about well, the I mean, dangers of alcohol. Cigarettes. Yeah. And that, how that's changed in the time that I've been smoking. Yeah. It's gone from something that was like pretty with some little words down the bottom yeah. to just death, death, yeah. death. Yeah. On it. <laughs> and I, I suppose that's not, you can't, you can't put that on out, or maybe you can, but certainly the little bit you get. You can have bottle. clearer labelling about yeah. the, calorie, the calories in a bottle and the amount of alcohol in a bottle of wine or a can of lager and things yeah. like that. You don't get any of that. You know, so you have clearer labelling of um, bottles of drink. I think, we, you know, about what's in it. Because the other thing is, people don't have—I mean—have no clue about what a unit of alcohol alcohol is. That no. we really underestimate what we think a unit of alcohol is and what a safe level of alcohol is, don't we? I mean, yeah. yeah so I think, and also lie to the doctor when he asks us <laughs> anyway, don't we? I smoke two cigarettes a day and like I barely drink. Yeah, that's yeah. Because Agent Charles did that that d- documentary in which. I've, I've not actually seen it, but I've had uh, so many people have told me I've got to watch it because yeah. they know of my interest in alcohol. So I'm, it's on my uh, to watch list. But but people got no idea how much alcohol they're drinking. No idea. No. Oh God, I sound like a terrible killjoy, don't I? No, we see that's part of the that's like this weird cultural thing we've developed in this country that even people who have like terribly public problems with alcohol, like say for example, you know George Best, mm. Shane McGowan. Paul Gascoigne. Mm. There's this odd sort of laddie culture created around, like that. It almost becomes sort of, I don't want to say heroic, but it sort of a sort of almost like a commitment to drinking that should be celebrated, which is really odd. Well, yeah. I mean, I I remember as a teenager uh, and a young man in his twenties, like going out on a Friday night, 
going out and getting absolutely off your head yeah. was like seen as a great thing to celebrate. Yeah. Oh, I was sick and yeah, everything. Yeah. And the next morning it was like a great joke. Oh, we were absolutely hammered last night. What a great night. You know, just sort of getting completely, yeah. bo- you know, particularly when you're a student. You, you don't get that in other European countries, I don't think. You don't no. seem to get it. So why have we got that here? I don't know. I mean, I, I was talking to a friend of mine about this the other day. I said, if... If somebody else had inflicted the damage on me that I have inflicted on myself when drunk, you would call the police on them. You would just say, look, take her away from that person because, look, she's got this on her knee. Yeah. She's got, oh, she fell over. She... But we also get very... I can remember a couple of years ago reading, you say about Europe, reading a, 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 an article by a French woman, a French journalist in The Guardian about what her perceptions of drink were when she'd come from France to live in England. And she was like, you people are like messed up. I, yeah. don't, I don't get it. But the comment section underneath was basically like borderline racist. Go back to France. Really? Yeah, because people don't like being told what to do. No. Do they? No. Alcohol becomes almost this civil liberties issue. And you're like, it is. You can do that stuff to yourself. Yeah. But it comes at a cost. And the cost is all of us carry. Yeah, absolutely. Well, look, we're sat in the House of Commons. When I first came to work in politics, gosh, what? nearly 20 years ago now, there were so many bars in this place. I mean, there still is bars, but, I mean, you, you know, and the, the sort of boozy culture in here where people go for boozy lunches, it was just all around. There still is that, but it's not nearly as much as what it was 20 years ago. But there's still a bit of it. I'm not, not going to kid the listeners. Huh. But the Speaker of the House of Commons, John Burko, I've read it in the paper, I don't know if it's true, but apparently has said he's, the bars aren't going to be allowed to be open in the daytime anymore, they're only going to be open at night. Oh, really? And there's loads of MPs complaining about it, saying it's out- outrageous. Um, you take my lunchtime drinking away. Uh, exactly, I mean, uh, I just want to emphasise to listeners though, I mean, it is not like it used to be here, yeah. um, not remotely, but I mean, 20 years ago when I got here, there was lo- lots of drinking used to take place. I mean, I've not been an MP for 20 years, I should sort of point out, I used to work in politics without being an MP, but... Um, yeah, lots of drinking used to go on in this place. Well, I mean, newspapers used to be the same. I don't think they are now, because I think particularly um, uh, with print media, yeah. um, especially with sort of smaller titles and local titles, they haven't got enough staff. You don't get a lunch break, let alone a big boozy lunch yeah. break. But yeah, I used to work with people who came back from lunch absolutely hammered. Yeah. And I and now I think, God, how are they not sat? That's, you're not even ready for work. <laughs> how are they... They were putting things on the front page of a paper that you could end up in prison with. Yeah. And they were so drunk that they were stumbling around the office. Yeah. Can we talk about some of the work is doing? Yeah. With- NACOA is a, a wonderful charity which I got to know through this work. I, hadn't, I wasn't aware of them before I started doing this work. Uh, and they are a charity to support children of alcoholics. And they, they're a little charity based in Bristol, Um don't have much money. Um, I've actually ran two London marathons raising money for them now. Oh, well done. <laughs> well, I came to London on a hot tube and I considered this to be an effort. But I've raised money for them. I mean, I just sort of decided I was going to do it. I was run the London marathon for them. After I did that speech, I thought, well, I've got to do something now for the charity. So I decided to run yeah. the marathon and I did it. And then I did it again the year after. Oh, and that, there's my running shirt there. I may well do it again, who knows. But um, You have watched it, right? Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, that, to be fair, that isn't actually the, that's a replica one. Oh. Uh, it's not actually the one I ran in. So they, they do tremendous work. They run a phone line where people can ring to get support and help. And they've got heartbreaking stories of little girls, six-year-old girls, seven-year-old girls ringing them on Christmas Day because the mother is paralytic and, and they just want someone to read, read a bedtime story 
stories like that, heartbreaking stories. They're an amazing little charity, just one on a shoestring, but offering this sort of phone line. Uh, I mean, can you imagine? Things are so bad at Christmas, you end up ringing a phone line. That's the sort of work that they do. I mean, there are other charities out there who do other good work as well, supporting families with... um, you know, you know, and families and children. But this is this is the the charity that I stumbled into finding, and it's one the one in which I've done quite a lot of work with, and um, you know, and I'm, we'll continue to work with them. You're not on your in your own in Parliament in, with this issue, are you? I've spoke to Caroline Flint about it before. Her yeah. mother was an alcoholic. Also, um, Liam Liam Byrne, Byrne uh, has spoken about his. Yeah, dad, his experience with his dad wasn't it? Yeah, his, his, his dad. Yeah, it can only be a good thing for. Children of alcoholics to be so I don't know outing themselves <laughs> is, is like an odd word yeah. by saying you know because quite literally we are everywhere. Yeah, I mean yeah, there's a few of us who've spoken out, Liam and Caroline, and we've campaigned and we actually got. I mean, I mean Jeremy Hunt, to be fair to him, who was the Tory health secretary at the time. Oh, was, do we have to be fair to Jeremy? Uh, on on this, <laughs> I will be fair to him. He was so moved by what all three of us had done that he put aside some government money to support charities like NACOA to run phone lines. And he actually, we actually did a giant announcement of, of it, him announcing the money and me welcoming it. And we actually had to do a joint interview. Unfortunately, um, Jamie Hunt's very tall and I'm very short. So on the on the TV interviews where we're still next to each other, he looks about seven foot and I look about, <laughs> I look about three foot four. So it looks it was a bit like that sketch, except, that, you know, I, I look down on him because he looked and I look up to him. So he did put some money in it. But, but what was interesting, when I spoke out... Quite a few MPs have approached me in here, thanked me for speaking out, because they've said they are children of alcoholics, but they don't feel they've got the confidence to speak out because they've got a sibling who wouldn't like it, or their mother, for example, wouldn't like them speaking out. Yeah. So there's quite there are more children of alcoholic MPs than those of us who have outed ourselves, who who and because they don't feel that they've they've got the self-confidence for family reasons or whatever to speak out in the way we have, which I thought was quite interesting. Yeah, it is. I find when I, t- when I tell people that my dad was an alcoholic, they kind of come to a number of assumptions really quickly and they look really surprised when you sort of disabuse them of the idea. Like when I say, no, I actually really liked him. We got him really well. Yeah. You know, he was really funny. He had a job. Yeah. You know, he, had a, he had an important job. He had a bit, like you said, with your dad yeah. when he wasn't working. Yeah. That was when the trouble lay. It yeah. was when he had time on his hands. And when he retired, that's when things went really Sounds quite, like exactly quite the same, badly yeah. wrong. If I look back, I was like, there, there were lots of ways that I could say he was actually a really good dad. Mm. It was alcohol that, yeah. was, that was the problem. Whereas I think, I say there's this sort of odd perception with some people that it's the problems with the person. And alcohol is sort of just a symptom of it, rather than alcohol is the cause of yeah. the problem. Obviously, obviously, we've been saying it's different for everyone. If someone came to you now and said, "I am the child of an alcoholic," what what sort of advice do you think you could you could give them? Oh God! Where's that? Funnily enough, I, I got a message from someone on Facebook saying exactly that, asking me for that <laughs> advice just the other day. What advice would I get? It's not your fault. It's not because of you or anything that you've done. It's because of all kinds of sad, complicated reasons that has affected your father or mother. But don't suffer in silence on your own. There is help out there. Yeah. There is help out there. And 
I don't know. I mean, I I made mistakes. I'm not sure if I confronted it in the right way. In some ways, I, I suppose when I, I went off to university and got a job in London, it allowed me to um, bury my head in the sand about it for a bit. Oh. Sometimes I ask myself, did that contribute to the escalating in later years because I wasn't around? I don't know. I don't suppose you can really ever really ever know that, so what's the point of beating yourself up about it? But I do ask myself that sometimes. But I suppose my advice is it's get help. The help is out there from charities like NACOA or... Um, Ad action or Al Anon, yeah. which support families. There is, you know, there, there is support out there. And actually, one of the things that the government are beginning to do because of the campaigning that we've done is put in place more money to support children and alcoholics. And if I, you know, became the health secretary, sort of, we would fund a proper children of alcoholics and children of um, drug misuse sufferers as well. Um, because we cannot allow, you know, wh- whether the figures two million or whether the figures in the hundreds of thousands, this is dev- this is devastating lives, yeah. and we cannot walk by on the other side anymore. We've got to confront it and support those children. And it's a cycle, isn't it? I mean, if you've got a higher percentage, if your parent was an alcoholic, coming an alcoholic, yeah. then it's just going to re- sort of echo through yeah. generations, yeah. isn't it? Thank you so much for your time, Jonathan. This has been really interesting. Um, I know it's not always easy to talk about this stuff, so. We appreciate it enormously. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Hi, Hannah again. Just to say, if you're concerned about your drinking or the amount someone around you is drinking, as Jonathan said, there are lots of people that you can talk to. Ad Action is one of the UK's leading mental health, drug and alcohol charities works with adults and young people in the community, in residential rehab and with outreach. And last year it supported 140,000 people. If you'd like to know more, you can visit their website, which is www.adaction, I'll spell that, A-D-D-A-C-T-I-O-N.org.uk. If one of your parents is an alcoholic, whether you're an adult or a child, NACOA offers services to you. That number is 0800 358 3456. Al Anon family groups are there for anyone whose life is or has been affected by somebody else's drinking, regardless of whether that person is actually still drinking or not. There are more than 700 groups in the UK, but if getting to a meeting is not easy for you, you're also welcome to join online meetings. You can find out more at www.al-anonuk.org.uk. There are plenty of other people you can talk to, of course, if you're worried about drinking. Talk to your doctor, talk to your boss, talk to your friends, talk to your family. I can't guarantee that talking to someone or indeed anyone will solve all your problems when it comes to alcohol. But what I do know from personal experience is not talking doesn't solve any of them. If you feel you can't talk to any of those people, you can talk to the Samaritans. Their number is 116123. That's the number to call from the UK and Ireland. Hello, Mickey here, interrupting, but you know, with some very important information. We have added a new guest to our November the 20th International Men's Day gig. And I mean, we're proper excited. So we have got the boss, Sarah Millican. 
We've got Richard Herring. We've got David Morrissey. We've got Colin Jackson. And now, add it, Mr David Mitchell. It's going to be crack... Oh, hello. (laughs) Anna's popped in to interrupt my interrupting. Lovely stuff. It's very meta here at Standard Issue. You can get tickets from Sarah's website, www.sarahmillican.co.uk forward slash standard hyphen issue and come see us and these splendid chaps on November the 20th at Leicester Square Theatre. Standard Issue for all women.